Well, good morning to you all. Uh, as Mark said earlier, my name is Eric Lipscomb, and uh, I work with an organization called Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, the acronym is RUF. And uh, I live in New York City now, so I have to clarify that Reformed is not like Reformed Judaism, but it's actually Reformed like the Protestant Reformation. So just to clear that up, um, I, I get asked that actually quite often, which is surprising, um, surprising to me. But uh, it's a joy to be with you here this morning. Um, I work as a campus minister. Uh, I work with students at Columbia and all over New York. And, um, you know, our, our mission is just is really simple. It's to reach students with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then to uh, equip these students to serve God and to serve their neighbors in our churches and through their vocation. So um, it's a great privilege to be out here with you today, uh, this morning. And, and today we're going to look at this passage from John 13. Um, in this passage, Jesus is sitting down for this meal, which Christians know as the Last Supper. And, and so what, he ha- what we have going on here is that Jesus is kind of giving his final instructions to his disciples before he leaves them. And so, so let me just kind of catch you up to speed a little bit as to where we're at in the book at this point. So uh, the beginning chapters of John, you see Jesus interacting with crowds and leaders of the Jewish people. And, and there's this tension that's growing um, because they either don't understand who he is or they don't like you know, what kind of what he has to say. So uh, particularly in verses or rather chapters 6 through 12, uh, the, this tension is continuing to grow as as Jesus explains who he is, right? He says, I'm the, the divine son of God who has come to offer grace and healing to the world. And, and the people continue to reject this message, even though Jesus is doing these amazing signs like healing a man born blind in chapter 9. And he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And so by the time we he- get here uh, in chapter 13, what we have is, um, is Jesus giving these instructions, right? to his disciples before he leaves. And, and I, would, I would venture to say that there's probably something important that he's going to say here, right? I mean, I think a lot of what Jesus had to say was very important and very uh, critical, but particularly as he's about to leave them, he wants to leave them with something um, meaningful. And, and so what we have is Jesus laying down this vital pattern of service for us, for his people then and for us now. And so, so what we want to look at is, is John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. It's printed in your order of worship. I believe it's page 900 in your pew Bibles if you want to pull that out. And uh, I'm just going to read it for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at uh, what Jesus is saying. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were already in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was about to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you are right, for so I am. If then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, It's given to us in love and it's true. Uh, Let me pray now for the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for clarity of thought and for me, clarity of speech as um, we understand and seek to understand your word, seek to understand your will for the world and for our lives and seek to understand uh, what's going on in this passage and how it relates to to us and to our service, Lord. Lord, we just lift this up to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this summer, as uh, I think Mark's mentioned, I was in St. Louis, Missouri, and I moved from there with my wife, Brittany, and we moved to New York, so we live in Manhattan now. And so this was a big move, obviously. We packed all our stuff up into pods and um, drove out in our car uh, halfway across the country. But our lease ended at the end of June, and we didn't move into Manhattan until mid-August. So we had this kind of month and a half where we were living out of our cars, or living out of our car, and uh, we're kind of up and down the East Coast visiting some friends and family. And, uh, and so during the month of July, most of the time we found ourselves uh, back in Virginia with our families. And, and uh, most of the time we stayed with my wife's family, our, our in-laws. And, and one of the greatest things about staying with my in-laws is that my mother-in-law, Bev, is uh, a fantastic cook. And she loves cooking big meals for her family and friends and having people over. And um, she's just, she was a, trained in culinary school, and so she's just a fantastic cook. And so we always eat really, really well while we're there. And we have these big elaborate, involved meals. Um, it was really wonderful. So we would sit down every night, myself and Brittany, my sister-in-law and, and her parents, and we'd just talk and hang out and enjoy this delicious food. Um, but, you know, if you know anything, if you've been in a big family or been at big meals, you know, the, the only downside to a big, elaborate meal is that it involves a big uh, cleanup at the end, right? And um, it's, it's one of the kind of unavoidable things about these big meals. So, so every night, you know, we would come as these meals were winding down and, and you just kind of see, look around the table and see the realization as, you know, smiles turn into kind of like frowns or scowls like, oh no, we're going to have to pick this up. And so everyone kind of starts looking down at their plate or, you know, looking around, you know, trying to sneak off to the restroom so you can maybe avoid uh, this cleanup. Right. And so, so we're all sitting there and, and kind of what, you know, once, once smiles are turning into frowns and sort of the standoff routine where you're waiting for somebody to make the first move and flinch and, and take the first plate. And, and then hopefully you're, you know, you're hoping that everyone, somebody's just going to say, you know what, let me take it tonight. Let me take the plates. Let me take the silverware. Let me clean the pots and pans. Right. But that never happens. Right. You know, uh, and instead, what usually happens is we would sit and argue about, you know, well, I cleaned last night. So you should take primary responsibility for this, that, or the other. And, uh, and we would kind of argue for a little bit, and then, you know, everyone else would sort of half-heartedly help out as, as, as one person sort of took charge. And so as, as I was preparing for this sermon and, and thinking about this passage, you know, uh, I was really <laughs> convicted and, and struck by my own reluctance to, to serve my family in this small and tangible way, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, like I'm in a service profession, right? I'm supposed to be thinking about serving people and wanting to serve and care for them, and yet... I just could not will myself to help my family in this way, right? I couldn't make myself want to do it. I would just sit there as guilty as anybody of just 
staring down and hoping that everyone else would kind of take charge. And, you know, I, I have a hunch, though, that, that I'm not the only person who uh, has a similar struggle with, with serving people. You know, I think, I think we all struggle to serve others from a full and joyful heart uh, at some time or another. Maybe not all the time, but at least sometimes. And, you know, as, as Christians, we affirm that God has loved us and, and we ought to serve the needs of others, and it's important. But at the same time, we also struggle to actually put that into practice, right, to care much of the time. And so the question I think we want to ask and we want to look at in this text today is, how do we grow in our capacity and our desire for service? And, and so as we bring that struggle and these questions to this text, I think we're going to see three things that help us in this regard. Um, and I think really the, the degree to which we were able to embrace this is a degree to which our hearts will grow in service. And so the three things are uh, embracing Christ's example of service, uh, embracing his spirit of service, and then finally embracing his motivation for service. Right? So we're going to grow in our capacity and our desire for service as we embrace Christ's example Embrace his spirit of service and then embrace his motivation for service. Um, so first, embracing Christ's example for service. And, you know, I think at the simplest level, it, this just means serving others ahead of yourself, right? This isn't rocket science. It's, it's, it's a simple thing, right? But it's also easier said than done. You know, I mean, and this is the whole struggle that I've been talking about. You know, if you think back to, you know, as a parent or, uh, or if you were a kid, you know, when you were told to, you know, share your toys with your siblings or, or with a friend or to include siblings in playing with you, right? That you're, it's something you don't want to do. Like, you want to keep that to yourself, right? But, and yet Jesus is pushing us on this very point right here, right? In, in verses 14 to 15, you know, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you, right? So Jesus is just essentially saying, you know, follow my lead, Right. But but this is like seems like the most self-evident thing in, in the Bible. Right. Like this is so obvious. Why does he even have to make this command? And I think we actually see that in the the, the attitude of the disciples. So and actually, if you if you have your Bible open, you might flip uh, back a few pages to, to Luke chapter 22. Uh, and what and what you see there is, is the same. Uh, the last the last supper it's just a different account of it. And so kind of what happens immediately before the feet washing is that. The disciples are having this kind of heated discussion, and, uh, and so Jesus says, you know, he's telling them, kind of giving them the instructions, and then Luke twenty two twenty four says, and a dispute arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Right, so, so here's the scene. Jesus is sitting there saying, look, I'm about to suffer, and I'm about to die, and so here's what I want you to do once I'm gone, and, and then he explains the instructions for communion, and, and so they're at, you know, they're getting this critical instruction, right, and what's their response? They're not... You know, waiting with bated breath, Jesus, what do you want what, want us to do, right? They're saying, no, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest, right? They're, they're sitting there, they're bickering. You're like, it's, it's laughable. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you, you're, you have your last hours with Jesus, and you can't think of anything better than to do than to just argue about who's better. Um, it's it's kind of silly, right? So you, you've got them bickering on the one hand, and then the other thing is in the midst of them is Judas, right? Judas is sitting there. In the middle of all this, and he's already decided that he's going to turn Jesus over to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver, right? So he's, you know, remember that throughout John, right, the tension has been building, and, and, and Judas sees the writing on the wall, and so he decides, you know, I better get out. I need to get out while I still can. And so he ends up, you know, deciding to turn Jesus over. He takes this money, and he decides, you know, rather than risk his own life, he's just going to take a little money and, and get out. 
right? Now, we, we can look at Judas. Um, we can look at the disciples who are sitting there arguing while Jesus is giving them his final instructions and think, you know, how silly. Or you are so self-absorbed. You are so self-interested, right? We see it so clearly in their lives. You know, they're arguing with this during this last meal. Uh, and yet, I think, you know, the truth is for us is that we, while it might not be as blatantly obvious, like we often share very similar sentiments to them, right? And look, I, I know I'm, I'm uh, we probably don't like to hear this, right? That, you know, especially if you're in a service profession or you, you know, consider yourself a, a caring person, you know, but I think the reality is that we are often just as self-interested, just as self-absorbed as, as the, uh, the disciples were. Right. And, and and so we don't want to truly serve other people. We don't want to truly serve God because we're much more interested in serving ourselves. Right. And, and in saying this, I'm not, you know, I'm not pointing the finger or I am pointing the finger, but I've also got three fingers pointed back at myself. Right. I'm I'm indicting myself as, in as much as anybody. Right. So so I think, you know, the first thing in in recognizing this that we need to do uh, is we need to just repent of our self-absorption, our our self-interest. Right. We need to continually Repent of the ways that we have ignored others, that we have, you know, put our own desire for comfort or our, our longing for some sort of status ahead of anything else, ahead of others' well-being, ahead of um, the good of, of our, our community or anything, right? We need to confess these things to God. We need to ask him for forgiveness um, and then pray that he would continue to work in our hearts and to open our eyes to the needs of others and really to move our hearts and soften them so that we can and move. Uh, act on their behalf, right? And, and the beauty of, of, of God and, and what he does is that he hears those prayers. He does forgive us, right? And he is faithful to conform us to this example of Christ that we've been exploring very briefly. So, so we don't naturally embrace Christ's example of service, right? This is why he gives us these instructions. And so the first thing we need to do to grow in our desire for desire and capacity for service is to, to repent of our Controlling self-absorption and, and self-interest. Right, so if that's the first thing we need to do, then, then the second means of growing in our capacity and desire for service is to embrace Christ's spirit of service. And, and when I say spirit in this, this sense, I don't mean like the Holy Spirit. I, I mean more like ethos. Um, so, so what I mean is, you know, to address spirit in this sense is to address a person's disposition towards service when they are serving, right? Because we recognize that, you know, it's one thing to do the right thing, you know, just because. But it's, it's also matters that our hearts are in the right place when we're doing them, right? That doing the right things for, you know, bad motives or wrong reasons or, or not with a heart full of joy is not, uh, not, not as noble, right? I was, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend in New York, and he's a junior uh, associate at a law firm. And he was in a meeting where, you know, all the partners were at this meeting, and they had a lunch meeting in their boardroom, and they were, you know, kind of going throughout doing whatever they do. And uh, at the end of the, the meeting, everyone had eaten and there were kind of just plates and things lying around. And so most everybody filed out. And, and my buddy was the junior member. And so he figured, you know, I should probably be the one to help clean up. And so he's going around cleaning up. And, and he sees one of the partners who had kind of hung around and, excuse me, was helping clean up. He's like, oh, man, what a, what a servant. Like, this guy is just really humble and gracious and wants to help serve and and so they're kind of picking up on opposite sides, and my buddy goes up to this partner in the law firm and says, hey, thanks for helping clean up. And he, the partner looks at him and just kind of grumbles and like, oh, I didn't realize anyone else was doing this, and uh, this is kind of below me. And, and so he just basically puts the plates that he picked up on, into my buddy's hands 
and walks out. You know, he, he so he had just been he'd been serving. Right. He'd been doing the right thing. This 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 other gentleman. And yet uh, clearly it was not out of the right motive or the right spirit. Right. That he had just decided that once he realized somebody else was doing this, the dirty work, the kind of the grunt work, he just kind of dropped it off for my buddy. My buddy's left holding these plates and forks and, and cups and things. Right. So. Um, so, you know, that's not a right spirit, right? Well, well, what is a right spirit? What is, what is the right spirit for service? And, and I think we get a sense of that if we look at just Jesus and his ethos and his disposition throughout this text. So why don't we just briefly walk through this passage? And so we'll, we'll start at verse 1. And if you look at verse 1, you know, what you see is, you know, Jesus, he says, I'm about to, ret-, you know, the, the, the narrator John is speaking. He says, Jesus is about to return to the Father and he loves his own until the end. Right. So even in the face of death, Jesus is there and he's continuing to exhibit this love and care for his followers. Right. It's it's not for the deserving. Right. It's not for the worthy. You know, the disciples are about to abandon Jesus and Jesus knows this. You know, he's in his hour, about to be in his hour of greatest need. Judas is about to betray him. The disciples are about to abandon him. Even Peter is about to say, Jesus, I don't know you. And he's about to do that three times. And yet out of this deep, incredible love. God still, or Jesus still serves them by washing their feet, right? He washes the feet of the people he knows are about to desert him. I mean, I think that's, I think that's remarkable, right? So, so we see that in, in starting in verse 1. And then coming down, getting to verses 4 and 5, right? You, so imagine the scene here. You've got Jesus in the middle of dinner. Everyone is sitting and, and, you know, kind of reclined at the table and they're enjoying this meal. And Jesus, who's the, the host of the feast, in the middle of it, he gets up and he you know, starts taking his jacket and his outer garments and he basically strips down to, you know, next to nothing. And, and he begins you know, to wash the feet of the disciples. Right. And so I think this is significant for a couple of reasons. And, and the first is um, because feet are, are gross. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry if I've offended any podiatrists in the room, um, but they're, they're just ick. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me. I don't know. Maybe you don't feel the same way, but I do. And. And I think that would have been especially true at this time because everyone walked around in sandals and there weren't as many paved roads, if, if any. And, and so they would have been walking around in the dirt and the dust all the time, right? But, but here's Jesus getting up from the meal, disrobing, and then kneeling down and washing their, you know, grimy feet, toe jam and all, right? He does this voluntarily. No one asks him to do it. Uh, he just willingly gets himself dirty for the sake of others, right, to, in order to make them clean. Right. But the other thing that makes this significant is that, you know, it was actually the practice at the time that a benefactor, when he held a feast, uh, would have slaves who would come and would wash the feet of, of the, uh, the guests before the meal. Right. And so so there was a, if you notice, there was a towel and a basin already placed in the room. Like, why is that there? It's because this was supposed to happen. Right. Somebody was supposed to clean everybody's feet. But, you know, Jesus didn't have any slaves. So, uh, you know, what the cultural norm dictated at this point is that. Whoever was the, you know, the junior partner, right, whoever was lowest on the proverbial totem pole, would have been the one to come and clean everybody's feet. So one of the disciples should have gotten up, taken the basin, taken the cloth, and gone around the table to clean everybody's feet. But no one does that, right? Whether they forgot or whether they just thought it was below their dignity, we don't know. But no one does that. And so here's what we see, though. We see Jesus not just letting it go. We see Jesus as, you know, the host of the feast, the master of the ceremony. Uh, taking on the slave's role, right? He places himself in the lowest and humblest position, right? He uses his station of authority and power uh, to influence, to bless, and to serve others, right? And I think we can often think of, you know, authority or power as this thing that, that we get to, 
that frees us from doing this menial work, that frees us from doing you know, the dirty work, the things like picking up the plates or cleaning you know, the feet, cleaning the tables, right? And yet Jesus uses it as the occasion for serving people in this simple and yet profound way, right? I think it's just remarkable. And so, so Jesus does that for them. And then we even continue uh, down in verses 6 through 10. Jesus comes to Peter. And if you've read the Bible, you know Peter is this kind of lovable, hard-headed um, guy who it seems to be always kind of doing the wrong thing. But, but, he, but he's also one of you know, Jesus' closest disciples. Right? And so Jesus comes to him and, and he says, uh, uh-uh, like, you're not cleaning my feet. And so Jesus is, you know, Peter is like, God, maybe it's pride. I don't know what kept him from it, but he's, he won't let Jesus touch him. And, and Jesus doesn't just give up on him, though, right? He, he actually moves towards him in that moment. He says, you know, I, even when Peter won't accept this gracious act, uh, he, you know, Peter says, I, I don't, can't do it. Jesus says, like, no, you need this. You need me. You need me to clean you, right? And what Peter has to do is, is swallow his pride and allow himself to be served, right? And, and we don't really like that as, as New Yorkers, as Americans, right? We, we value independence. We value uh, being able to take care of ourselves. And yet Jesus says, you need me, right? And I'm here to serve not only the rebellious, but I'm also here to serve the reluctant, right? Those who don't even want to be served. Uh, those who don't admit their need, even when we, that, that is the reality of them, right? So, so Peter doesn't quite get it. And yet Jesus continues to deal patiently with him and to deal tenderly with him, right? So, I mean, in all these verses, we see Jesus' spirit of service, right? And we see this love that is enduring unto death. We've seen even extending to those who flee from him. We see Jesus denying himself. We see him taking the station of a slave, doing this dirty work and doing it willfully. Um, We see him humbling himself, not seeking status, not doing it for his own gain, uh, but in order to bless his followers. And look, Jesus had every right that his, his followers, his disciples, would serve him, right? But, you know, Mark 10, 45 tells us, you know, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, right? And to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what it means to, I think, at least start to em- embrace Christ's spirit of service, it means that we show kindness to our neighbors, you know, even when they will repay it with rudeness, right? You, you have those neighbors, those people you know. Um, it, it means that we give of our time and our money, uh, and we do so not only out of our ex- excess, but even when it is costly for us, right? It means that we exhibit a charitable and merciful spirit, even when it's not convenient. Um, and in essence, it means that, you know, these outward displays of piety and help and, and loving actions, right, that, that they're not just, you know, things that we do, but they're actually meant to be a true reflection of an inner disposition of love and humility, Right? Christ denies us. No, Christ does not deny us. Christ denies himself in order to accept us. Right? And he uses his blessings in order to bless others. And he calls us to do the same as well. Well, well so far, here's kind of what we said. Let me just recap briefly. You know, we said that we need to grow in our capacity and our desire for service. And so the first thing to do is to repent of our self-absorption, of our self-interest. Um, and then we need to embrace Christ's example of service. And his spirit of service. But, you know, we haven't really said why we should do any of those things, right? Or what's going to enable us or drive us to do them. And, you know, I think if we, if we were to just leave things at this point, then you'd walk out of here with kind of a, a little to-do list and a plan for becoming a more upright person. And, and that's okay. Um, but, you know, it's actually 
hollow, and it's definitely not what Christianity is about. You know, Jesus does call us to imitate his example of service, but he is so much more than our example, right? That, that being a Christian is not just about doing the right things, right? It's about being someone who does admit your need for God's unmerited free love, doing what Peter struggled to do, uh, receiving that grace by putting your ultimate hope in Jesus Christ, and then living in light of that reality by extending that grace and that love and that service to others, right? The heart of this message of Christianity and the heart of our motivation for service is recognizing and receiving the love of Jesus that God has shown to us. You know, why wasn't Jesus so self-absorbed? Why wasn't he so self-interested, right? I mean, you know, have you ever thought that? I think the reason is because he knew the love of God the Father more than any person who's ever lived. And it was that love which moved him uh, and moved him as the son to come to us, to come rescue each of us individually, to come rescue the entirety of creation from brokenness and death, which we now are subject to. And so now we, you know, we love and serve not in order to gain Jesus' favor, not in order to gain God's favor, but we serve 